0: And we just basically have been moving through the, the book of 1 John. I titled this message, The Mark of a True Christian. The Mark of a True Christian, which is love for one another. Love for one another. The mark, the identifying characteristic of a true Christian. One of those identifying characteristics is that they have a love for one another. I was thinking about that. And as we'll see as we get through the text, it's a, it's a special type of love. It's a, the same type of love that Christ had for his people, sacrificial love. And I was thinking, where else do I read about that type of love in the Bible? I read about that type of love in the Bible and that command to have that type of love in Ephesians 5, where husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. I was thinking about all of that, and, and then I saw this story I thought that's an, this is an interesting story of, that really contrasts all that. So I thought I would share it with you. The story goes like this. A, a woman was arrested for shoplifting. And when she went before the judge, he, he asked her, what did you steal? And she said, a can of peaches. And the judge asked her, how many peaches were in the can? And she said, six. Six. So the judge said, I'm going to give you six days in jail. One day for every peach that was stolen. And before the judge could pronounce his judgment upon this woman, the husband stopped, stopped the proceedings, and he spoke up. And he said, Judge, she also stole a can of peas. (laughs) Careful, men. It's just not right, is it, baby? It's not right. <laughs> that is not love, brothers. That is not the type of love we are, we are talking about this morning. Let's look at this love together. Let's look at it. Let's read from God's Word. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Just let your eyes follow along with me. The Apostle John, writing to his Christian readers, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So this morning, if you're new with us, you can pop open that bulletin that you might have in your lap and you can look inside. On the left side, there's an outline that you can use to follow along. And like I said, I'm not going to repeat everything for sake of time that we said last week, but we did start this message last week, so there'll be some things that are left out. You can always go back and and listen to that online. This morning, we're going to consider two facts about Christians so that we understand what a child of God should really look like. A very simple outline. And that first fact is true Christians are not characterized by Cain's hate. They are not characterized by Cain's hate. The second one is true Christians are, on the positive side, characterized by Christ's love. So let me remind you of just a few points that we talked about last week. 1 John, the letter, 1 John helps clearly establish who is, and who isn't an authentic christian a genuine christian and that's what we've been talking about as we've moved through this letter and john does that by pointing out differences in belief what one person believes about jesus christ specifically and between and behavior so the differences in belief and behavior between the children of god and the children of the devil So, reading through 1 John, you'll see that the children of God do this and do that. Believe this, believe that. And in contrast, the children of the devil do this and do that, or believe this or believe that. Beloved, I've said this before. People may claim, they may profess to be Christian, but according to the Apostle John, according to this letter and other places too in God's Word, if there are not certain things true of their life to some degree, then their claim is invalid. Their claim is false. Their claim is a lie, according to John. Not according to me, but according to the Apostle John. If there are not certain things true of their life. In other words, to be a Christian means there's going to be something different about your life. Something very different, very distinct. You will be separate from the world. You will be holy, not perfectly, but you will be holy as your Father is holy. And one of the things that John says should be true of Christians, should be one of those characteristics, is love for other Christians. We talked a lot about that last week. We're not speaking here general type of love. We're not even here talking about love for your spouse or love for the world or love for your enemies, but in this case, specifically, love for other Christians. Christians, love for people in the Christian community. If a person claims to be a Christian, but they do not love other Christians, they are not of God. It's that simple, and that's what John says in verse 10. It's that simple. It's that simple. In fact, because of the evidence of love for one another that the Apostle John witnessed among his readers, John was able to confidently say in verse 11, that we just looked at in chapter 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We know it. We know it. We, meaning we, John and his Christian readers, have been truly saved. We talked about that phrase, passed out of death into life, last week. Our love for one another as Christians, beloved, is proof that we have left the realm of spiritual death and separation from God, and we have entered into the realm of spiritual life and fellowship with God, union with God. That is made evident by our love for one another. The bottom line is you can spot a genuine Christian because he or she truly loves God, but also loves the children of God, those who are born of God. That is other Christians. And we see that again in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. So, the first point, though, that we come to here in the outline, that was kind of all review from last week, is true Christians are not characterized by Cain's hate. And we started to look at this last week, but we're going to dive back into it again. So look back at verse 12 of 1 John. And this is what John says. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So here we go. In stark contrast now with the brotherly love, the brotherly love that Christian people should have for one another. He's making a contrast. John's saying true Christians should not resemble Cain. They should not resemble Cain. They should not be like the one who slaughtered his brother. We talked about that word last week. Murdered is actually, that word really means butchered or slaughtered. It was the same word that they used when they would sacrifice an animal in preparation for offerings unto God. Slaughtered. Maybe even cutting of the throat is the picture there. This is what Cain did to his brother Abel. But I don't believe John's point in bringing up Cain is to tell his, read, his Christian readers that they shouldn't murder each other. I mean, think about that. Is that really, is that really John's point? Hey, listen, you should love one another. Now, don't go around you know, slicing each other's throats. Don't be murdering each other like Cain murdered his brother Abel. I don't, I don't think that's the point, because I don't think that point would have to be made. Does any, would any Christian go, Whoa, I didn't know I shouldn't have done I d- didn't know that. I will put my knife away. Sorry, sir. No. That's, that would be rather ridiculous. Rather, he brings up Cain's murder, this picture, as an illustration, as an example of someone who clearly had no love for his brother. No love for his brother demonstrated by the fact that he violently took the life of his own flesh and blood. He took his life and he did it in a violent way. And I believe that, that John raises this issue of Cain, brings up this illustration really to ask and answer a question, which he gives us here in the text and why did he murder him? Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his own brother. And why did he murder him? And why did he murder him? Now, before we look closer, let's turn in our Bible, or let this whole text, this whole issue. Let's turn our Bible to Genesis chapter 4 for a moment. We'll read quickly about what took place between Cain and his brother Abel, in case you're not familiar with the story. Genesis chapter 4, it's page 3 in those blue Bibles, if you're using one of those. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. So we have in the first part of Genesis, we have the creation of the world. God has spoken the world into existence. He has created the first two human beings, Adam and his wife Eve. Sin has entered into the world. They rebelled. They were kicked out of the garden. And now in chapter 4, we are told of Adam and Eve coming together and conceiving a son. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 10, Now Adam knew Eve, which means he knew her physically. They came together in a physical relationship, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Two brothers, Cain and Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, so Cain's a farmer and Abel's a shepherd, okay? In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Meaning he just brought the best of a particular animal, uh, the firstborn from his flock of animals to the Lord for an offering. And then it says, look closely, And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He was not pleased. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So not literally, his face fell. That would be very strange. But he he got a look on his face of being very upset, disappointed. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Look verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. What? Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? In other words, am I responsible for him? Verse 10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, we're going to dive into this. I just want to make a side note here for you parents, You know, those of you who have raised children or do raise children, are in the process of raising children. Just a side note, two brothers, same family, same environment, same upbringing, one mom, one dad, no violent video games, no violent movies, and yet one is a murderer. So I, I thought I would just, show, just make that note because a lot of times parents put such grief and guilt upon themselves because one of their children, or maybe a few of them, go haywire. By that, they freak out, they rebel, they go nuts, and then they start to question, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? How could I have prevented this? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be diligent as parents in bringing up our children in the ways of the Lord and instructing them and teaching them, but beloved, people are sinners. People are born sinners, and here you have a perfect example. There were no... You can't blame evil internet, you can't blame the violent video games, you can't even really blame the parents because Abel was a good kid. And yet Cain turned out to be a murderer. Just a side note. So I'm not going to dive into the details of this passage right now, but I want to just point out a few things for you for the sake of first John. Abel's offering to God was accepted by God, but Cain's offering was not. Is that clear? Everyone can see that. That's clear. Now, we're not told in Genesis, what we just read, or anywhere in Genesis, exactly why Cain's offering was rejected. It doesn't say that in the text. But obviously, in one way or another, Cain was not obedient to God. Maybe on multiple levels. But bottom line, Cain was not obedient to God. If he had done well, he would have been accepted. God would have had regard for his offering. Apparently, Abel Cain, that is, did not follow God's instructions in presenting or making or bringing that offering in one way or another, okay? He could have repented, right? So when, when he saw that God did not have regard for his offering, he could have repented. He could have said, Oops, I blew it. I messed up. I was wrong. God, forgive me. And he could have done what he should have done in the first place. But he didn't do that. Instead, he just got angry, He just gets angry, right? Now, it's worth noting that several times in the New Testament, Cain is referred to as an example of how not to be. How not to be. So like in Hebrews 11.4, you can look these up later, or in 1 John 3.12, where we are this morning, or in Jude, verse 11, Cain is pictured as being unrighteous and of the evil one. That's what John says. Unrighteous and of the evil one. In contrast, Abel, his brother, is referred to as being righteous or obedient to God. And you can see that in Matthew 23, verse 35, and also in Hebrews 11, verse 4. So that's the contrast. Now, thinking back on what we just read in Genesis, we saw that Abel's offering right was acceptable, but Cain, his brother, became angry when his offering wasn't accepted. And then he went home and pouted, right? Is that what he did? That's not what the text says. No, what follows that story is he's out in the field talking to his brother and murders him. He murders his brother. Why? What did his brother Abel do that would have caused Cain to to take his life. Well, John tells us. John tells us why Cain murdered his righteous brother Abel. And it's important for us to understand this morning. Look back at the text, 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. It's in the last part of verse 12. The Apostle John ask and answer answers his own question. He says, and why? Because that's what anybody would want to know. Why did he murder him? And John simply says this, because his own deeds were evil, that is, Cain's deeds, and his brother's righteous Abel's." Now hear me, listen. Based on the context, I believe what John is simply trying to get at is this. Cain murdered his brother for no other reason than the fact that Cain was of the evil one. He was of the evil one. John's already told us that. That's made evident by the fact that his deeds were evil. In fact, it's the same word being used in both places. When he says he's of the evil one, which means he's of the devil, he's a child of the devil, that same word evil is used when he says, and his deeds were evil. And then he goes on to say, and Abel's deeds were righteous, meaning Abel was of God. He was of a God. He was a child of God. His deeds were righteous. He was obedient to God. One writer says this, Cain, this is all John is saying, Cain was on the side of the evil one, whereas Abel was on the side of God. Or, Cain belonged to Satan, and Abel belonged to God. Now let me remind you of something that Jesus said to His disciples and is recorded for us in John's Gospel. And John is the one who wrote 1 John. So these words are recorded by John, the same guy, and they are the words of Christ. Let me remind you of them. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, He's talking to His disciples, His followers. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me, Jesus, way before it hated you. If you were of the world, if the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, for that reason alone, the world hates you. The world The word "world" here, beloved, that word. it doesn't. He's not talking about the physical Earth, obviously. You can't, how do you have a physical Earth hate you? He's not talking about the Earth. He's talking about the people who are part of the world system which is ruled by Satan, according to John 14:30, and remains in rebellion to God. People of the world are, like Satan, opposed to the true God opposed to His Son Jesus Christ, and are opposed to those who are of God, children of God, to one degree or another. They are opposed to them. They despise them. They hate them. They despise true righteousness, and they despise those who practice true righteousness. That is, the children of God. One writer puts it this way, Christians are to the world what Abel was to Cain. Christians are to the world what Abel was to Cain. Abel did nothing to incite Cain to murder him other than the fact, other than the fact, that he obeyed God and practiced righteousness. That is why John goes on to say then in verse 13 of chapter 3, it all flows now when you get to that verse, do not be surprised, look back at the text, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That the world hates you. Why would the world hate them? Why why would the world hate, and he's talking about brothers, he's talking about Christians... Why would the world hate them? Because Christians, as he's been describing over and over again, Christians are people who are of God, who are his children, who happen to do something, they practice righteousness. They practice righteousness. We saw it in this set here in chapter 2, verse 29. Those born of God practice righteousness. We see it again in chapter 3, verse 10. I mean, the one who doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. It is the children of God who practice righteousness, who obey God, who live for God. And for that reason alone, the world hates them. They are characterized by living for and obeying God. That is, Christians. Remember, that is a God who is holy, a God that hates sin, who hates disobedience or rebellion in any way and in every form. And the world cannot tolerate the presence of righteousness. It is an irritant, hear me, it is an irritant to their sinful, rebellious hearts like sun to vampires. Now I'll have to explain for some of you, because you are messed up in your twilight, theology, whatever you want to call that. I am sorry, but when the sun hits a vampire, he does not sparkle like diamonds. That is a lie. He melts. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, some of you out there with me. That's right, he melts. He dissolves on the spot. Diamonds. (laughs) Diamonds. <laughs> dumb. Just dumb. But anyway, that is what it is like. Righteousness to the unrighteous is like son to a true vampire. He avoids it. He hates it. It crushes him. It is an irritant to him. And beloved, it has been that way from the beginning. For all of history, it has been that way. Going all the way back to Genesis, and it continues to be true. That we see the children of God persecuted and hated for no other reason than they are practicers of righteousness or ones who obey—that's a bad word—but ones who obey God, who follow after God, and they're hated by the children of devil because of it. One writer says, "Like Cain of old, like Cain of old, the world in its alienation from and opposition to God." Cannot tolerate the presence of righteousness. Now, beloved, listen to me. Listen. We're not talking about moral living or polite behavior. Okay, that's when I talk about true righteousness as the Bible talks about true righteousness, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not because the world will tolerate moral living to some degree. They'll put up with that and they'll they're okay with polite behavior to one degree or another. What they're not okay with is a person who lives their life in subjection to God. A life that bows to God's rule. A person who calls Jesus Lord and Savior and lives as if they actually believe that. And in that life, the only thing they can see is Jesus and Jesus and Jesus over and over and over again. And they're living in rebellion to Jesus. And all that does is remind them of who they are and where they are with God. Disobedient, rebellious, haters. And therefore they hate the children of God. And we see this over and over and over again. I was watching some video on YouTube. This was a man who was just standing out on the street in a parade. It was a a gay pride parade in one of our cities here in America. So they were doing what they do. And this man was simply trying to preach. He was just kind of preaching right there on the corner. And as this goes by, the people are walking by, he has bottles thrown at him. He has people throwing his literature all over the place. He has people cursing at him. He has people saying all kinds of things that, are, that we shouldn't even hear. Right, so that's the obvious. You see, you see that. Why? I mean, he's just a man out there talking about Jesus. Why are they so upset? Why are they so upset? And I think you'll see this more when someone is living and more committed to their rebellion to God. So to the degree that the rebellion exists, they'll have even a harder time with the righteousness expressed in the people of God. And to the degree that the people of God are living for God and expressing Jesus Christ, then they will experience this more. You know why we don't probably experience this as often as we should? Because we have learned to live in a way where we can get along with even the children of the devil. Because we tone down our Christianity. Think about that. We tone it down. We've learned to to interact in a way where we don't get anybody upset. But listen, beloved, the goal is not to get upset. The goal is to get other people upset. That's not the goal. If that's your goal, that's wrong. The goal is to live in obedience to Jesus Christ in any and every way, in every area of your life, in the workplace, at home, in your community. And when you do that, you will experience what John is talking about to one degree or another. You will. You'll experience it. And John is saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Cain murdered his brother, his righteous brother, Abel. For what reason? No other reason that his deeds were righteous. He was a child of God. I've found this to be true. You know, you can talk with people, and you can talk about a lot of things, and you can have a nice conversation. But bring up Jesus. And usually the conversation starts to change. Or even with a religious person. Or a spiritual person. Tell them Jesus Christ is the only way, because that's what the Scriptures say. And watch their attitude change. Am I right? Yeah. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That's what John is saying. Now I could say more on that, but what, what John is trying to get at is that the child of God, the child of God is no longer a person who lives in opposition to God. They are not that person. They are no longer a person who is okay with practicing sin. They are no longer a person who lives in rebellion to the righteous one, Jesus Christ. But rather, they are a person who has fellowship with God. Therefore, they desire righteousness and practice righteousness in their life. They are a person who has surrendered to and follows after Jesus Christ, the righteous one. As a result they are not repelled by their Christian brothers and sisters who also desire to practice righteousness. But rather, they are drawn to them and they love them as their very own. As their very own. They do not hate them as Cain hated his righteous brother, for they, Christians, are not of the evil one as Cain was. Rather, they... Christians, have passed out of death and into life. They are of God. They are authentic, genuine Christians. They are children of God. That's John's point, I believe. True Christians, beloved, do not hate your brothers and sisters in Christ. They don't. They don't hate them. They're not characterized by that. It doesn't mean they cannot get upset with them for some other reason. You come over here and you stomp on my foot. Hey, hey, there's going to be a momentary feeling of some extreme hatred towards you for such things. I mean, especially if you did it on purpose. But we're talking about, if I just hate you for the fact that you're a child of God, there's something wrong. If I am bothered and irritated by the fact that you practice righteousness, you proclaim Jesus Christ, you live for Him, there is something wrong. Because true Christians do not hate other Christians for that reason. They do not. They're drawn to them. They're drawn to them. I'm, as a Christian, am drawn to another Christian when I see Christ in their life. I'm drawn to that because I have Christ in my life. So do, true Christians don't hate their brothers and sisters in Christ whether they love them. Well, what exactly does it mean that they love them? What does that mean? What does it look like? And that brings us to the second point. True Christians are characterized by Christ's love. They're characterized by Christ's love. Let's look back at the text. By this we know love, verse 16, chapter 3. By this we know love, John says, that he laid down his life for us. He's talking about Jesus. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John turns now from talking about hate and focuses in on love, and he uses Jesus Christ now. He used Cain as one illustration, a negative example. Now he uses Jesus Christ as a positive example, the perfect illustration of what Christian love for one another should look like. And John is saying, we know, we as Christians know personally what love should look like because we have a perfect example of it in the historical event of Jesus' death on the cross on our behalf. Jesus gave up His life. Beloved, not as a victim. Not as a victim. He didn't get caught up in what was going on in Rome and just fall under their power. He wasn't a victim. He willingly, knowingly, and in control gave up His life in order to save sinners and reconcile them to God. That's what Jesus did. Jesus' death was love on display. It was love on display. A love that went the distance. A love that was willing to sacrifice greatly for the sake of others. And beloved, Jesus' love was not simply sentimental, not just emotional, nor did it only express itself in words, I love you. It went beyond all that. It was made very clear for all to see by what Jesus did. By what He did. By His acts. Loving us, Jesus laid down His life for us, Christians. And John says it is this type of sacrificial love that Christians ought to have or manifest toward one another. It is a love, beloved, that is willing to surrender, if necessary, even one's life for the sake of their brother or sister in Christ. Did you hear that? That's the kind of love it is. One writer says it this way, It is a love that is prepared to meet the needs of others whatever the cost in self-sacrifice in whatever the cost just as john said and we looked at this many weeks ago just as john said in 1 john in First john chapter 2 verse 6 that whoever says he abides in him whoever says he's a christian ought then to walk the same way in which he walked who Jesus Christ. So if you say you're a follower of Christ, you say you're a believer, you say you're a Christian, then it ought to be true that you walk just as He walked. Well, here again, whoever is a child of God, a follower of Christ, ought to then love one another as Christ as Christ loved us. The Christian, the follower of Christ, according to John, is morally obligated. That's what he's saying. They are morally obligated and supernaturally empowered. We know that from other passages. Supernaturally empowered and motivated by God to love this way. To love this way. To love as Christ loved. To love his brother or sister sacrificially. Love that goes the distance. That is why John can so confidently say in verse 10 that the one who does not love his brother, the one who does not love his brother, they're not of God. That's what John says. That's why he can say that. One writer says this, God loves those who are His and you, as a Christian, will love those who are His as well. This is not merely a duty. This is not merely a responsibility. This is an evidence of the presence of God who is love living in your life of God having shed His love abroad in your life, of God having placed His Spirit there, who is manifestly producing love. That's what John is saying. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. Then he goes on and says, If anyone has but, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John now presents a very practical hypothetical to further make his point that Christians, true Christians, authentic Christians, genuine Christians, they love other Christians. They love one another. So he says, if a person observes and discerns, he just gives this hypothetical, If they observe and they discern, they understand that a member of the Christian community is in need. They're in need. And that person has the material means, that's what it means here, the material means to meet or take care of that need. But instead of doing that, that person closes his heart against that person in need, turns his back on him, and refuses to extend any compassion to him, John says, How exactly then can it be true that God's love dwells in such a loveless person? And John doesn't answer that question. He doesn't answer it because the question is rhetorical. It's rhetorical. Thomas mentioned that earlier today. It's a rhetorical question, meaning is it is asked in order to make a point without expecting a reply. He's just making a point. The, que- the answer to the question is obvious. It doesn't exist. It's the whole point. That type of heartless behavior cannot be the behavior that characterizes a Christian. It just can't. And John will come back to the topic of love, just piling away, kind of just bringing more to this topic Again, in chapter 4, he'll come back to the topic of love and there we'll read in 1 John 4, verse 7, Beloved, here again, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves, in the context one another, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone, no exceptions, anyone who does not love, this is what John says, does not know God because God is love. And again, in the context, he's talking about love for one another in the Christian community. And then finally, let's look back at verse 18, moving along. He simply says this, little children, chapter 3, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We know here Christians should love one another right? like Jesus' love. John's already made that clear. Christians, then, don't just yell from heaven, right? Because Jesus didn't do this. So think about this. Jesus didn't just yell from heaven, Hey, I love you! And he also didn't send someone else to tell us that he loves us. And he didn't just write a note in the sky. He could have done all these things. He didn't just write a note in the sky to tell us that he loved us, right? but He demonstrated and proved the reality and sincerity of His love by leaving, by personally leaving the glories of heaven and coming to earth to ultimately die a cruel and humiliating death on the cross to save rebellious sinners. It is by that loving act by that deed that you and I, as Christians who have experienced that love personally, know love. Truly know love. It is by that act. And so John is saying, beloved, our love for one another, it has to be lived out or expressed in real and meaningful ways. If our love (coughs) for one another is only verbalized, if that's the extent of our love, I love you, brother. I love you. If that's the end of it, then the proof for us being genuine Christians is weak at best. It's weak at best, right? I mean, we can talk about I talk about this in marriage counseling and such. But a woman, I think a man does too. I like to hear, it. but a woman especially wants to hear her man say, "I love you." I'm using general terms now. Maybe you're a woman who doesn't like to hear that. That would be weird, but or different. Maybe I shouldn't have used that. That'll offend somebody. But normally a woman wants to hear, I love you, from her man, right? But more than that, she wants to experience that love. She wants to know that he loves her, and she'll know he loves her by what he does for her, for what sacrifices he makes for her. That's the woman who truly knows her man loves her. It isn't just, I love you, honey. That's good. That's a good place to start. It isn't just notes. Those are good too. But it's love lived out in real and meaningful ways, sacrificially. Well, how much sacrifice does it take for you and I to say I love you to one another? For some of you, I know it takes a lot. So that's a good place to start. (laughs) But how much sacrifice really does it take? But to lay down your life in one way or another for your woman, Or for your man. Right? That's love. That's what we're talking about. That's what John is saying. Don't let it just be in word and talk. Let it be in deed and in truth and sincerity and genuine love. And next week we're going to pick right up from verse 18. We're going to pick right up from here and we're going to go right into verse 19 because, listen, 19 follows 18. Oh, you guys are sharp this morning. But I say that because 19 is connected to 18 because he says in 19 by this by what John by the fact that our love is more than word or talk but it is indeed and in truth by that we will know we shall know that we are of the truth and assure our heart before him that is God it is the reality of love for one another expressed in more than just words, beloved, that not only proves to others that we belong to God, but assures us and assures our heart that we truly are children of God. And that John's readers might be assured of having a genuine relationship with God is one of John's reasons for writing this letter. That's what he wants them to have. He wants them to have assurance that they truly are children of God. And when the child of God is told, love in this way, the child of God is motivated to love in that way, and the child of God is the one who finds the power because Christ is living in them to love that way. And as that happens in their life, it is just a confirmation to them. Wow, that's not me. I'm not about sacrificing. I just saw Jesus at work in my life, and it confirms to them they truly are a child of God. We're going to talk more about that next week. Now let me make a quick application before we have communion this morning, try to tie this all together. Loving one another like Christ. Let me just say this real quick. I thought about this on the drive over here. I think what typically happens with many things is we immediately think of somebody else when we're being instructed from the Scriptures. So instead of thinking about ourselves, we say, you know, yeah, Bob, he doesn't love one another like Christ loves oh man, my husband doesn't really love one That other Christian member, boy, they really need to get with this. I hope they were listening because they certainly don't sacrificially love me. Listen, I think it would be better for us as a body and for you as an individual to just let this sit with you. Alright? Just let it sit with you. Do you? Do you? Do I? Do I love like this? And to the degree that I do, can I love more like this? And how can I? And in what way? And am I looking to love like this, my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I looking to extend myself and sacrifice myself on their behalf? Looking for nothing in return. Not doing it to get something. Not doing it to make them like me. But just doing it out of pure, unselfish Christ like devoted love for them, for their benefit. See, our sin gets in the way of this, right? Our selfishness gets in the way of this this instruction, of this command. So, when I say Christians are characterized by loving one another as Christ loves, oh, it's not perfectly. Oh, wow, sweet it would be if it was perfectly, right? Can you imagine? How awesome that would be. I would have no more counseling sessions if this was true. If people were really loving one another as Christ loves, sacrificially laying themselves down. I would have nobody upset because they would just be extending themselves and forgiving one another and loving one another and pouring it out on each other. Wouldn't that be great? Tony, wouldn't that be great? It's going to be great one day in heaven. But now we are still commanded to live this way. And we won't live this way perfectly perfectly. But we can live this way progressively. Yes, sin gets in the way. But the Christian, beloved, has a spirit-empowered motivation to obey God. That's what's unique about the Christian. He hears this stuff and he goes, I want to do that. I want to do that, and I want to do it more, and I want to do it better. I want to do that. I want to do that. Because I want to obey God. And as a result, the Christian life is one of repentance. It's one of repentance because they go, oh my goodness, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Lord, forgive me. Lord, cleanse me. Lord, help me. Lord, empower me. My friend, forgive me. I didn't love you. I didn't love you. Forgive me. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Thank you. Can we pray right now just that we would help each other love one another this way? See, that's the Christian life. It's a life of sin all mixed up with obedience, but it's a life pursuing Christ and living for Him, and they begin to be characterized by this Christ-like love. And the Christian uniquely is enabled and motivated by the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of them to do exactly what God has asked of them. That's why the Christian is characterized by these things. The non-Christian beloved does not have a desire to obey God. They hear stuff like this and they go, Yeah, okay love one another <laughs> maybe you know if I get around to it if I think about it maybe I would give my love to someone else what that's the they don't really they're not and the reason they would do it is not because they're living under subjection to God because he is everything to them no they'll do it for some other reason maybe to get some benefits back maybe to release their guilt a little bit for living in sin they do it for the wrong reason or they don't even do it at all. And as a result, the non-Christian life is one of rebellion to one degree or another, not one of repentance. That's the difference, beloved. Christian, non-Christian, rebellion, repentance. Continuing to be conformed to the image of Christ, continuing to rebel against Christ. And the non-Christian lacks the power to truly do what God has asked him to do. So even if a non-Christian attempts to do these things, they think there might be some benefit for them. They won't find the power to do it. Because you and I do not have the power to love like Christ loved on our own. We don't. I do not. And if it weren't for Christ in me, it would never happen. So you get to communion, right? And communion is an interesting thing because we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23 through 26, where Paul gives instructions to the church about communion, which is really a picture of Christ's love for his people. And it is a picture of our love for one another because we do this together. It demonstrates our unity in Christ. As brothers and sisters, we come together and we share this meal together. And you have this, this bread, this little piece of cracker, whatever it is, and this juice, and we know that Jesus says these things are representative, the bread of, and the cracker of my body given for you, and the juice, my blood poured out for you, my very life given up for you on the cross. That's love. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate love. Here's what's, here's what's so ironic. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you read just a little bit up before that, there was, there was not much love going on in the church. Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians. They were coming together, and they were just having a feast as they, before they would celebrate this meal, just having a feast. Nobody was waiting for each other. And the rich in the church were even pushing off the poor, not even providing anything for them, kind of putting them in their corner. Is that crazy? And so Paul rebukes them. Paul rebukes them for their lovelessness toward one another. Now, if they're truly Christian, they will repent. Right? Because that's the Christian life. They'll repent. They'll go, this is no way for us to behave one towards another. And that's the Christian life. God calls us to obey Him. God calls us to be holy. God calls us to love one another as Christ loved. And we see ourselves failing in these areas if we're honest. We fail. But then we repent. Turn to God and find in Him the power to truly live that way. And it changes everything. It makes the Christian community different from any other community on the face of the planet. So as we celebrate communion this morning, brothers and sisters, and this is for you if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, do not partake. This meal is not for you. It's a celebration for those who are children of God, who know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. If you have any questions about that, or you're not sure you're a believer, or you're not sure of anything I'm saying this morning, I would love to have you come talk to me after the service. Love to speak with you. But this this is your meal. This is our meal. And as we partake of it together, the elements will be passed out. We ask that you wait until everyone has the elements and then I'll get back up we'll partake together. As these elements are passed out, would you just think about the message this morning? Spend a few minutes thinking about this. If Christ so loved us, and here it is, as we celebrate it, then we ought to love one another. And are we doing that? And if we're doing it great, can we do it more? Can we excel? As Paul tells his Christian readers, excel in these things, excel in loving. Do it more. Let me pray for this these elements. Father God, I thank you for your instruction, for your word. I thank you for your people, for your church. I thank you for gathering us together. I thank you for the people that are here this morning. I thank you for the new people that are here this morning. Father, I thank You for what this communion meal represents. I thank You for the love that was extended to us and experienced by us as Christians. That love being Jesus Christ as He laid down His life, willingly came to this earth to lay down His life by dying on a cross as a substitute and taking upon Himself the wrath and condemnation that we deserved as sinners, as rebels. He took it upon Himself so that we could be forgiven of every and all sins. Past, present, and future. So that we could be righted and reconciled back to You, God. So that we could truly become Your children. So that we could be saved and given the promises of eternal life and all that that means and includes. Father, we thank You for this love. Help us then as we meditate on that love and we meditate on the the reality of who is in us now. It is Christ, that One who loves like that. May we meditate on these instructions that then we ought to, we are morally obligated to and spiritually empowered and motivated to love one another sacrificially In that way. May we meditate on those things and to the degree that we have not done that, we have failed. Father, may we come to You and repent and confess because we will find forgiveness because of Jesus Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.